It is an honor to be here and to be uh, hanging out with you this morning. Um, and it's been a blast becoming a part of this community. And I even think transit might, were they in here? Are they gone? Are they still here? I see some of the trans, they came up to hang out with me. And so um, because of that, I'm, I'm going to bring something for you next time I teach because you have to put up with me uh, for a long time. So there, there's a bonus coming for you guys. Uh, I'm going to be honest, so I am a little nervous this morning. Um, do you remember, it was diff- it's different now than when I did it, but remember when you got your, let, let's pretend we're all about the same age in our kind of 20s or 30s for a second, uh, and you got your, your G2 and then you have to go for your G, but you're driving pretty confidently with that G1 or whatever it is, and then you go and do the next test and the instructor comes and sits with you, and all of a sudden panic, you're like, you're feeling confident when you're by yourself, but then panic sets in. That's kind of like today. I normally feel confident, but Dave is like the expert, the driving instructor sitting there right next to me now, and so I'm just super nervous with you here, Dave. In fact, maybe take your chair and turn around and just face the other direction. That was me. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not nervous. In fact, Dave, listen up. You might learn something. Um, um, It is good to be hanging out with you this morning, and we want to kind of continue a little bit on with... Uh, uh, what Dave was talking about and and continuing on in John, and we're going to be looking at conquering the Great Commission this morning. And I think it's an important one, and so this morning I hope is going to be um, less theological and more practical, because when it comes to the Great Commission, I think this brings about a lot of fear in people. And it's something that we um, actively don't do, um, because we're nervous about it. And so I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about that and, and hopefully give you kind of six different approaches to the Great Commission. And I think one of them will fit you. And if we all dive into that one that fits us, I think we can bring about a lot of change in our community around us. And so uh, I want to take a moment and just uh, read from you uh, in John, continuing on where um, David left off with us. And uh, it just simply says this, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Um, And then I want to jump to one other passage. Uh, All of the Gospels kind of present the Great Commission, uh, but I love uh, the one in Matthew, Matthew 28. And I just want to read that to you. Similar, but a little different in the wording. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When we think of the Great Commission, I do think it brings about kind of some fear and anxiety in some of us. Because often, if you're like me, I think of the Great Commission and the presentation of the gospel to go and make disciples through one or two different lenses, and I go, that's not the lens for me. 
And so I'm going to date myself a little bit here. Most of you will have nothing, because this is a fairly young church, but no, most of you will have no context for any of this. But some of you will. And I want to see if you remember, because I want to look at some of the evangelical gospel experiences that I've grown up with. Uh, I don't know if you remember this image. This is uh, Jim and Tammy Baker. I don't know if anyone here, throw, okay, a couple of you know Jim and Tammy Baker. And then the other one, the next one, this is uh, a guy by the name of Jimmy Swaggart. And uh, this is right after he confessed his uh, fallen mistakes. And this was the height of the 80s was TV evangelism. And you would turn on the channel and there would be these TV evangelists sharing the gospel. Most of them fell from grace. Um, and uh, in fact, did a lot of damage for the church because we're trying to recover from the damage uh, that they had done. And so this was kind of the era of the TV evangelists. In fact, uh, if you know uh, the band Genesis and Phil Collins, Phil Collins went on to write a song about TV evangelists called Jesus, He Knows Me, and He Knows I'm Right. I've been talking to Jesus all my life and basically communicating whatever I tell you, just believe me because Jesus talks to me and then I'm going to talk to you and, and kind of spoofed on TV evangelists. The next image uh, is one of a Billy Graham crusade. And I'm wondering how many have ever been to a Billy Graham crusade? Few people. Okay. Amazing. Billy Graham crusades actually mean a lot to me. Um, I have a grandmother. She passed away in 2008. Um, but um, through addiction to uh, drugs and alcohol, it cost her her marriage um, and uh, some struggles with her children. But in 1978, at Exhibition Stadium, she went to a Billy Graham crusade and came to Christ. And from 1978 till when she died in 2008, she was free of drugs and alcohol and had just an amazing relationship with God and changed our family because uh, both of my parents grew up in homes that didn't grow up in the church. And so Billy Graham holds a warm spot for me because of what it did in my grandmother's life. Uh, then I also remember in 1995, uh, Billy Graham came back uh, to Rogers Center, or Sky Dome at the time. And in fact, the night I went down, I actually had to sit on the stairs outside the stadium. Uh, there was more than 80,000 people inside the stadium, and then they had set speakers up outside the stadium where thousands sat on those concrete stairs listening to Billy Graham. And he would travel the world preaching about Jesus and uh, doing an amazing job. The next one is uh, a, a, a movement called the Jesus Movie. And I remember as a kid, we would hand these movies out. We went door to door in our neighborhood with my parents, and the Jesus Movie was on VHS. Many of you will have no clue what VHS is. <laughs> um, but it was this big black thing, and you had to stick it in a machine, and it often got wrecked. And, but we had these Jesus movies on VHS that would be put in baggies with a card in it, and we'd go and we'd put it on people's doorknobs of their homes. Um, probably a dangerous thing to do nowadays, but back then, but I remember as a kid, it was uncomfortable, so I remember putting them on the doorknob and then running away. It was almost like if you ever grew up playing Nicky Nicky Night Door, where you'd like knock and then run and hide and see if they'd come. That's what the experience was like. You'd put it on the door. Now, some, most of you should remember this one. This is quite simply, there was a movement called WWJD. What would Jesus do? And we would put bracelets on our wrists, and it was a reminder to look at it and go, well, what would Jesus do in this circumstance? And it became an outreach tool because people would ask you about your bracelet. Before WWJD, it was just simply 
what would you do if your mom was here? Um, that's how we kind of thought about it. But then Jesus took over and took that one away from us. Um, and then the last one that I remember, there's been many, but it's Alpha. Now, we've even done Alpha here. And Alpha's been a movement that's been around for a long, long time. And there's many more, but these are kind of some of my memories and experiences with the Great Commission. Some of them bad and some of them really good. But we've had these experiences that shape how we approach the Great Commission, shape how we approach going out and making disciples. And for many of us, it causes us to actually not do it. Because the images and experiences we have are people in front of crowds doing things that we are not comfortable with ourselves. You know, most people don't want to be up front on a stage giving a speech. That's not a comfortable space. Uh, Fortunately, uh, you know, I had a dad who uh, came to faith later in life but became a pastor. And he taught me many things. And one of them was learning to laugh at yourself. And so I remember in grade I don't know if they still do it now. We used to have to give speeches, grade six, seven, and eight. You have to give a five-minute speech every year. And I gave a speech in front of the class with my fly down the entire time. (laughs) And I just owned it and learned to laugh at it, and so I became comfortable with it. But for many people, being up here is not a comfortable space. Talking to people about something that is somewhat controversial in our community when it comes to faith is not a comfortable place to be. And so I want to talk a little bit about that this morning, because here's the key. Uh, And I'm going to go back to the passage for a second. It says, then Jesus came to them. All authority in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, go and make disciples. This was not a statement to just those 11 that were there. This is a statement to all of us. And so it's very important that we understand that, that we are all charged by God to go out into all the world and make disciples. Not kind of, oh, that's for the two or three. That's for Dave to do. Dave's good up front. And so Dave can do that part for us. And, and we'll just make sure, you know, the grass is cut at the church and, you know, and we'll do the spring cleanup. No, we all have a responsibility But if it is only about getting up in front of the stage and doing the Billy Graham type thing, it's not going to happen because we're not comfortable in those spaces. And so how do we become comfortable with the Great Commission? Well, I want to present to you kind of four, or sorry, six different approaches to it Um, and see if maybe one of them fits how you're wired. The first one is simply that, the direct approach. The direct approach. Uh, We read in Scripture, Peter, it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. That's the direct approach. Peter gets up in front of a crowd and says, Listen up. I'm going to explain things to you. I'm going to explain the gospel to you. I'm going to explain who Jesus is. I'm going to explain to you forgiveness. I'm going to explain to you what baptism is. He gets up in front of a crowd and just begins to speak. He demands the stage and says, listen up. And this is what we call the direct approach. And I'm going to guess that most of us are probably not comfortable with the direct approach. But this is the approach we most often see. 
You know, you're walking through downtown Hamilton or maybe Toronto or another city, and there's somebody on a box yelling, repent, repent, you're all going to hell. And they're doing the direct approach aggressively. But it's not one you're comfortable with. And in fact, you see that and you go, I don't want him to know I know Jesus. And we stay away from that. We're uncomfortable with it. Or we see the Billy Grahams of the world. We say, I could never do that. I'm not comfortable with it. But it is an approach to the Great Commission. It's an approach Peter took. Peter got up in front of this crowd, as it says, in Jerusalem and said, let me explain this to you. Let me explain God to you. And he takes the direct approach. Now, this is a hard approach to do uh, in churches nowadays and continue to stay humble uh, as our churches grow. And Billy Graham just happened to be one of those guys that always seemed to figure out how to stay humble through it all and not be baited into some of the things as we look at uh, Tim and Tammy and Jimmy Swaggart that they fell into some of those traps and baited into their own, you know, celebrityism. So it's a hard space to be. Dave does it great. Humble man. Humble man. But he is comfortable being up here and teaching and sharing the gospel. And so he's been gifted with that, and he does it amazingly. But that's not how everyone's wired. So there's a few other ones. The second one I want to raise to you is called the intellectual approach. And if you've been around me, you're like, oh, that's Matt. That's, the, that's definitely <laughs> his approach. Uh, we, we read in scripture, you shouldn't have laughed that hard. Oh, man. Um, in Athens, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those that happened to be there. The intellectual approach, the debate approach, he engaged with them. It, you know, Paul is, is walking through the town and he sees all these different idols all around him to different gods. And he's like, what is going on here? Where is God? Where's actually God in all of this? All I see is this idol, that idol. And so he begins to engage with them in kind of this intellectual approach, this debate approach. You've got to be good at this one. This one can go sideways in a hurry. Um, I'll never forget, I was probably 19 years old, um, and I was working in a bakery in a grocery store, 18 years old maybe. And there was another guy in there, and we started to debate. We started down the road of the intellectual debate. And as an 18-year-old, you're pretty confident. You know nothing, but you think you know everything. Um, I have a few of them in my house. Um, and I engaged in this intellectual debate with this guy. This is how it finished. In a frustrating tone, I said, fine, let's make a bet. The winner will hand a glass of cold water down to the person burning in hell. Do you think he came to church with me on Sunday? Do you think he said... That's the Jesus I want to love. No. I think he threw the bag of buns we were stuffing and at me and walked away. And I went, saved another one to the kingdom. <laughs> the intellectual one is one, again, that few can get involved in because it can go sideways, but maybe that's you. 
Maybe you love to think through uh, theology and all of the different structures of the church and, and faith and, and understanding them and engage with people in this kind of debate conversation. But it is an approach that does work because there are some that are out there that think things through extremely logically. And if you were to say to them, you just have to have faith in this thing you've never seen or heard before, but trust me, he loves you. What? And then they want to engage in that. And so it is an approach that we can take, and it's an approach that works. But again, I think one and two, the, the direct approach that Peter took, the intellectual approach that Paul took, is one that probably doesn't fit the mass majority of us. But there are a few of us that that relates to. And that's amazing, and it's a gift, and I encourage it. The third approach is this, the testimonial approach. And this one is an easy one, because it's just you telling your story. Just you telling your story. Now, for many of us, we shy away from it because we don't think we have a good story. You know? The good story is I was once uh, uh, running drugs for the Hell's Angels and along the way I found God and I managed to get out of the club and they weren't going to let me and they're going to kill me, but I found a way and God protected me and now I found Jesus and I tell this story and we're like, wow, man, God is so powerful. Look what he did. It's the Paul story on the road to Damascus. He was hunting down Jews and, and killing them and, and just denouncing this, this religion, this faith that they are a part of, and along the road he finds Christ, he finds God, and he has this huge transformation. And we hear those stories and we think, wow, that is so powerful. That is so amazing. I came to Jesus at five and a half. What transformation do you think took place? I stole my brother's toy. My parents said, no, I found God. And suddenly now I've had this amazing turn, and what a story. My story is one that I came to faith at five and a half years old. I remember kneeling by my bedside. We lived in Calgary, Alberta at the time in this backsplit semi that had the tiniest of kitchens. And so our kitchen table, kind of like one of those beds that folds up into the wall, that was our kitchen table. And it would only come down at mealtimes, and we'd sit around it. But I remember kneeling by my bedside with my dad and accepting Jesus. And so when I hear these other stories, I think, man, my testimony is boring. I'm going to tell my testimony in like one minute and 15 seconds, and it's over. And how is that going to make an impact on anybody's life? But I want you to hear this today. Your story is your story, and it's important. Because it is a story of somebody being saved by Christ. It is a story of somebody who has had their life changed by Christ. And you have found a new way of living, whether that happened at five and you grew into it and you learned and you growed, or, or that happened at 22 and you found Christ on campus, or it happened to you at 35 when you finally managed to get out of the biker gang that you were a part of. Whatever that is, it is your story, and it's an important story to tell because it's one that is ours, and so therefore we can tell it with passion, we can tell it with truth and honesty, and it should come naturally because it's your story. 
And so I encourage you, if given the opportunity, if someone says to you, can you tell me your story? How did you end up where you are today? Don't leave the part of Christ out of it. Well, I went to Mac, and you know, while I was there, I really, you know, I really enjoyed math, and so I decided to get into this field, and that led me here, and then I met so-and-so, and they got me a job here, and that's how I got to where I am. And we leave out the part of Jesus. We leave out the part that says, yeah, at five and a half years old, I remember kneeling at my bedside with my dad. Not totally understanding what I was doing, but I knew that it was important. And then over the next 15 years, he would do devotions with me. And we'd go for bike rides, and we'd talk about God. And then I remember sitting in our hot tub in the backyard and him asking me, do you love Lisa? Yeah, I do. Are you going to marry her? Yeah. And I got to share in those moments with him and we got to pray about it together. And he said, let me pray for that then. Let me pray for what that future looks like. And then he got to marry us. And I have all these moments that developed me in my story that seem boring when you go, well, it doesn't compare to the dramatic life change that took place in that, but it is this beautiful story that takes place over many, many years of me coming to this place. And so don't shy away from your story. And when someone asks you to tell it, tell it. The fourth one, and I think one that is super easy, it's called the relational approach. It's called being a friend. It's called developing relationships. I love this story of Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Jesus sees this man and he says, I'm going to your house. And they go and they hang out. And what's beautiful about this story is Jesus didn't arrive at the sycamore tree. And you need to know back then tax collectors were, you know, not, you know, widely loved. You know, they were somewhat schemers and we're going to collect taxes a little bit for you and a little bit for me. And, And Jesus arrives at this man and he doesn't open his statement with, hey, Zacchaeus, you up there in the tree. How about you stop doing what you're doing? How about you stop taking money from people and you know, start giving back? No, he doesn't open with that. He says, let me go to your house. Let me hang out. Let me share a meal with you. Let me build relationship with you first so that you know who I am. And I think this is a beautiful approach to the Great Commission. And it's called the relational approach. It's the approach that says, you're not a project to me. You're somebody that I want to invest in and do life with and have opportunity to engage with you. And when we build relationship and friendship with people, whether they're our neighbors, whether they're the you know, you know, other parents of the, the team or activity our kids are a part of or at the school, or maybe it's an activity or something that you play and are involved in. We have an opportunity to build relationship with people. When I first started pastoring years ago, I was at a church called Philpot Church, downtown Hamilton. And I remember talking to the lead pastor at the time, Lane Fuselet. And um, I said, Lane, I'm I'm struggling. 
He said, why? What's going on? I said, I come here every day, and I'm just with church people. And then I come, and I could come every night of the week. There's something different happening at the church every night of the week. I could come every night and be involved in something. And then I go home, and then I run my youth ministry, and I go home. And he said, Matt, you need to find something that you enjoy to do and make it a priority that's not a part of the church. And so my wife and I, we love baseball. Played baseball my whole life. We still play baseball. We play co-ed together, but we play, I play men's baseball. She plays ladies' baseball. And we said, okay. And so we decided we're not going to play church baseball. If you grew up in the 90s, early 2000s, any church sport is a terrible sport because people take that as a license to behave like crazy people. Um, And so we just avoided it. Um, But we decided to join. And we we just actually submitted our names to a league. We didn't even know anybody. We just said, hey, is there any teams looking for players? And we got connected with this team. And um, Lane said, the other thing you need to do, Matt, is you need to make sure that's a priority and nothing compromises it. And so it went down in my calendar Wednesday nights or whatever night it was, and that was a non-negotiable. Unless somebody was in the hospital and needed me or something like that, it was never going to be, hey, do you have time to meet? Can we meet Wednesday night? Can't do Wednesday night. I already have something on. He says, you don't need to tell them what it is, but that becomes the opportunity for you to build relationship and for you to engage with people and become the extension of who Christ is. And that's the relational approach to the Great Commission. Through that approach, I've had the opportunity to probably do, I don't know, maybe eight weddings of people that we met through the league, funerals. Um, People have gone through divorces and have called me, and we've sat together and cried as they've processed through it. And it's given us opportunity to step into the lives of others simply through relationship and investment. And it doesn't have to be this moment where you suddenly go, okay, I've been there long enough. Now I'm going to tell them about Jesus. But it's just doing life with them and they begin to see something different in your life. And I guarantee you, tragedy hits us all. None of us are void of tragedy. None of us are void of hardships. But when tragedy and hardship hits their life, you will be the one they turn to. And suddenly God opens up doors. I'll tell you one other quick story of God opening up doors through relationship. Um, My boys grew up playing uh, competitive soccer. So we had a chance to travel a bit and uh, bond with different parents and get to know them. And and one year, my son, Eli, was in a tournament in Rochester, New York. And the coach, Steve, uh, was a great guy, super competitive, though, wanted to win, especially as Canadians going down. It's like, yeah, we're going to run the table here. And so the boys had a curfew. They had to be in their beds by 10 o'clock at night. And so as parents, you're like, I don't want to go to bed 10. So if you've ever been on a team, maybe hockey, whatever. So as parents, we're sitting in the hall of this Holiday Inn outside on the floor, and we're talking, and, you know, and, uh, and then I said, oh, I, I, I'm going to have to go to bed soon. I've got to get up at, at um, quarter after 5 because I've got to leave in the morning to get back. So what are you talking about? I said, oh. Lisa and Eli, they're going to come home with somebody else, but I, I didn't take the Sunday off. I have church, and so I've got to get back to Burlington. I'm going to leave at about 5.30 in the morning from Rochester so I can be back to church in time. And then the question comes, well, what do you actually do? What does a pastor actually do? Like, do you have another job Monday to Friday? And I'm like, no, they actually pay me for this. 
And so you start to share things that, that would make sense to them, you know, like, oh, you know, I do, I do some counseling and, you know, we, we do some work with some different non-for-profits and uh, I do weddings and funerals. And, and somehow it gets around to this question of, well, why do so many marriages fail, Matt? And it's because of relationship, they ask these questions and they're open to your response. And so we don't have to shove Jesus down their throats, but through relationship, we wait for opportunity, and then God just opens a door. And I said, oh, okay, well, if you'd really want to know, I'll, I'll tell you, I can guarantee your marriage will never fail if you do one thing. And now if they're, what? I said, I guarantee it, your marriage will never fail if you do this one thing. And it's okay. I said, there's this guy named Jesus. And Jesus practiced this thing called other-centered love. And it was this idea of he put aside all of his own needs and just looked to the other person and looked to meet all of their needs. And I said, in a marriage, if you can put aside all of your needs and just look to the needs of the other, but at the same time, they're putting aside all of their needs and looking to your needs, then I guarantee you your marriage will never fail. Super hard to do. I'm not saying that's easy and that I deliver on that every day in my marriage. Oh, my wife's nodding. Yes, I do. Okay, great. Um, but I had this moment to talk to them about other-centered love that was modeled by Jesus. About three weeks later, we're sitting uh, at a, a training session, and I'm sitting in the stands as the boys were competing, and this dad sits down next to me. And he just turns to me, and he says, Hey, can you tell me about that other-centered thing again? I have some questions for you. And suddenly we had this hour and a half long conversation while our boys were training, sitting in these stands, talking about the other-centeredness love of Jesus. That happens through relational approach where we connect, we build relationship, and suddenly a door opens because his marriage is struggling. And he goes, I don't know what to do. And the question comes. And so that's the relational approach. Uh, the fifth one is the invitational approach. Quite simple, you just invite somebody. You invite somebody here. Let Dave do all the work. You just have to invite them here. And there are a lot of people sitting out there that are just simply waiting to be invited to something. To something. And Westside does some amazing things. At Christmas time, the, the kids' movie at, uh, at the Westdale Theater, uh, the Fairweather Pub Night, the bowling. Like these are simple on ramp stuff where you can just simply turn to your neighbor and say, hey, we're doing this thing. You want to come? And they're just desperate to be invited to something. Easter, Christmas Eve. You know, people are more open to church stuff then because it just seems normative. And so Westside, does opens up opportunity where you just have to simply say to your neighbor, the coworker, family member, hey, I'm going to this Christmas Eve service. Do you want to come? And then let Dave and the team here do all the work. You just have to invite them and then sit there with them. And the team at Westside will happily do the rest for you. Happily do the rest for you. That's the invitational approach. It's very simple. It's just simply asking a question. Do you want to come with me? The last one is the service approach. And this is simply where we go and we serve. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, 
drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Washing someone's feet back in the day was something a servant did. And here is Jesus, their rabbi, the one they follow, who gets down on his knees, wraps a towel around him, takes out a basin of water, and begins to wash their dirty, dirty feet. That's the service approach. And so how do we look to serve others? And there's many ways to do this, many ways. Um, I used to know a, a couple of ladies, and they, they would call me, and I finally went, you got to come, you got to come, you got to come. And they would go down once a week with other people um, in downtown Hamilton uh, to this empty parking lot near Ferguson Station Park, if you know downtown at all. And they would just set up and serve a hot meal to anybody who wanted one. And people would come, and they would just simply serve them. That's an approach to the Great Commission. Jesus was a servant. He didn't come as this king on a horse looking to free them from the Roman Empire. He came as a servant. And he said, this is how you do it. And so he looked to serve. That is the Great Commission to me. Those six different approaches. We are all called, as those disciples were, to go out into all the world. There's no uh, retirement from it. There's no, I don't have to do that. That's, that's Dave's responsibility. That's the team at Westside's responsibility. No, we all have a role to play. But some of us aren't good at certain approaches to it, and that's okay. That's okay. But I think in those six, there's one that can fit you. There's one that can fit you, whether it's the uh, direct approach and just getting up there, whether it's the intellectual approach and entering into conversation and healthy, not unhealthy like I did, but healthy debate with people. The testimonial where you just simply share your story because your story is a beautiful story. The relationship approach where we just engage with people and begin to build relationship with them. The invitational approach where we just ask. People are waiting to be asked. And then finally, the service approach, where we just simply go and we serve. We can't hide from it. That's not what God has called us to do. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is a call to all of us. And so which approach will you choose, even this week? Which approach will you choose this week? You know, is there someone in your life that you can just build relationship with? Maybe you've been ignoring that neighbor. Maybe you just moved into a brand new house in a neighborhood, and you're looking to get to know the neighbor. We go out and we build relationship. Maybe there's somebody that you just have been, I want to invite them, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Just invite them and see what happens. The next time someone says to you, tell me your story, how did you get here? Don't leave the Jesus part out. Don't leave the Jesus part out. Maybe there's a way you can serve, whether it's a ministry in Hamilton or whether it's just serving in your neighborhood. You know, cutting somebody's grass for them because you know it's hard for them to do and asking for nothing in return but seeing what might happen. And maybe you're the direct approach or the intellectual approach person. And I just say, go for it. My wife and I, I want to leave you with this. My wife and I, we love, um, not all, 
and some of her choices I don't agree with, but we like reality TV. And she's made some poor choices in that, but that's okay. Um, but the two shows we really do love, um, and don't judge us for this, we have never missed a season of Survivor. Absolutely love Survivor. I think it's a great show about betrayal. Um, we, sadly, we really enjoy Big Brother. U.S., not Canadian, I don't know why, but don't judge us. And then we also enjoy The Amazing Race. And I want to leave you with The Amazing Race. Because when we think of the Great Commission, I love, and my wife always gets a kick out of it because I wait for it every year. Right at the beginning of the race, Phil, who is the host of The Amazing Race, simply says these words, and I want to say to, them, to you now, as you think of the Great Commission, he says to all those competing, the world is waiting for you. Good luck. Travel safe. Go. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for just who you are and how you came and you modeled for us what it looks like to make disciples. And God, you came to us with a challenge in the Great Commission, a challenge that just wasn't for those 11 that were sitting there with you, but they were for all of us. And it was simply to go out into all the world and make disciples. Go out into all the world and let people know of the saving grace of your love, the forgiveness of your love, the mercy of your love, the embrace of your arms. And that's our job, God. That's our role. And we have people all around us, neighbors, coworkers, family members, people that are on baseball teams that we play on, soccer teams that our kids are on. But we have people all around us and we have an opportunity, Lord, to bring this idea of the Great Commission to them. They are the world. Go out into all the world, and the world is right here at our doorstep. And so, God, my prayer for each one of us today, that we would go, that we would go into all the world and bring this message of hope to people, and not to be afraid of it any longer, not to be afraid because we're not good at speaking in front of people, not to be afraid because we're, we don't think we're that smart and we understand enough of the Bible and when someone asks us a question, we're going to not know the answer. But God, we just simply take an approach and we go and then we allow you to work and see what you might be able to do if we just allowed ourselves that space for you to work. And so God, for each one here, I just say, the world is waiting. Be safe. Know that God is with you and go. Amen.